There's serious questions surrounding the origins of COVID-19 and the so-called vaccines. Professor Edward J. Ted Steele is a molecular and cellular immunologist, geneticist and microbiologist and the author of six books and over 100 scientific research papers. Professor Steele's scientific background qualifies him to comment both on the performance of the vaccines for COVID-19 as well as the origin of COVID-19. These subjects will be explored in a special series on Asia Pacific Today. Professor Steele, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank you very much, Michael. Great. It's great to be on this show. Now, the origins of the virus, well, it isn't settled. What's your scientific opinion on the origin of COVID-19? Well, first of all, the story I'm going to tell through the various questions you're likely to ask me will be 180 degrees different to what, you've, what we've all been familiar with or read in the newspapers. There are three main um, explanations for what happened with COVID-19 and how it arrived, but everything comes back to the first big event. You might remember in January last year, we witnessed a massive epidemic of coronavirus, COVID-19, across in, in Wuhan, China. But I'm just going to quickly flash up for you a map. You've already got this map, which I've sent you on the email. That map shows the, the pattern of infections throughout China in January 2020, that is 18, 18 months ago, in the first strike that, that, of this uh, pandemic. And it was across all across China. It was centred on Wuhan, but it was everywhere in China. The important thing to understand is millions and millions of people were exposed in that that first month, and it was igniting like a like a bomb going off across China in multiple locations in cities throughout China. It wasn't just Wuhan, and it was simultaneous. That is, everything was erupting at the same time. Now, that's what's got to be explained by any theory. The theories are that it came from a bat, uh, say, a relative virus that was from the first pandemic in 2002-2003 from SARS-1, uh, and then it jumped into humans. And, but then you'd have to, if, even if that did happen, it has to explain the scale of the eruption in China. Okay? It was, that scale is beyond you know, imagining because China is a huge country, almost 1.5 billion people, and we're talking about tens of millions of people getting the infection more or less at the same time. That has to be dealt with. Now, the odds of it coming from any, any one of the existing coronavirus sequences from bats or penguins or any other animal to humans to get an exact match without going into, into too much technical mathematical detail, the odds of that occurring are impossible. That is, uh, the odds of getting an exact match quickly over a few months uh, and to give that ignition across everywhere across China would be 10 to the 100, sorry, 10 to the power 684. See, the closest relative to the, from the first pandemics with uh, SARS uh, are 96.2% similar. Now, that might sound great, you know. Well, well, it's possible, isn't it? The trouble is the coronavirus genome is 30,000, approximately 30,000 nucleotides or genetic letters in length. And 96.2% uh, similarity translates to 1,100 changes all occurring at the same spot in this long string of the virus genome, uh, you know, exactly. To get uh, to get the match now the odd, the odds of getting that 
are 10 to the 684. We've done the, we've done the simple statistical calculation. That's impossible because the universe, the known universe, which is about 10 to the 13.5 billion years, billion light years across, the known universe only has about 10 to the 84 atoms, hydrogen atoms. So the actual probabilities far exceed all the molecular resources and statistical resources of the, of the known universe. It's impossible. It could not come from a bat or a penguin, a penguin, any of those sequences. And all the molecular evolutionists who study it agree with us. They use their own ways of reaching that obvious conclusion, but it's, they all agree. So it didn't come from an animal. The next uh, theory, and this is in the popular press, and it's being pushed very strongly every day in news-limited newspapers in Australia, the US and the UK, is the Wuhan lab leak theory. That is that uh, scientists in the Wuhan Institute of Virology were, were manipulating and making a, a, something similar to COVID-19, and then they got it out there and it somehow escaped and got into the Chinese community. Well, that, that may very well be, but that didn't happen with the Spanish flu in uh, 1918, 1919, where we had a massive global pandemic coming suddenly and erupting around the globe. There were no, the viruses weren't even identified then. They were just being discovered and we didn't know what they were, let alone any information on DNA and RNA, all the, all the genetic information we have today. So it, it couldn't have been a, 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 that sort of thing back then, nor at any other time in history with all the other major pandemics that have occurred in history. So it's, look, it's a Cold War conspiracy theory because not only does it doesn't fit the facts of how pandemics come and go in history, um, it's, you've got to explain that massive pattern across China erupting in the, in the first month. How did that happen? Did they... they, they Somehow, other millions of bats got infected with, you know, a virus now that could infect humans and was spreading all over China in the night sky and dropping their um, fecal bombs on the population. Look, you've got to get real here. These these sorts of explanations are not scientific explanations. They are fantasies. They are pure science fiction fantasies. So, look, I've got more to say, but I'll just say one more thing. Suppose it was a bioweapon from the Wuhan lab. Well, it's a bioweapon that only by my estimate and every other sensible professional's estimate only only is serious for 0.1% of, of, of the population of human beings that get infected by it. That is the immune defenceless elderly comorbids. 99.9% .9 of people treat this like the common cold. Why then, why then release it as a bioweapon? If it's, you know, a bioweapon should be designed to take out your, you know, opposition's armies. Not its frail elderly people in nursing homes. Look, we have to get real with that mm. fantasy that Shari Markson and the others are pushing. Now, the third explanation is the one we're offering based on very hard, serious historical precedent and a lot of serious data analysis at every level. I, I should say at every level, astrobiological, astrophysical, genetic, immunologic, epidemiologic, and geophysical timing and the temporal relationship of what the way things unfolded. In other words, we're dealing with the evidence. We're not, we're not making anything up. We have to deal with the evidence. And the starting point is that massive eruption in China in, uh, uh, in January last year. Now, all the evidence to us points to a, a life-bearing virus-rich, coronavirus-rich carbonaceous meteorite strike on the night of October the 11th 2019 over Jilin in the 40 degree north latitude line in the stratosphere, 
a massive uh, fragmentation cloud of viral Latin particles was deposited in the mesosphere and the stratosphere, and then it came down, and, uh, <clears throat> and two things happened. Quite a bit of that cloud came down and literally contaminated the entire China through coming down with the, the, uh, the rain and the, and the precipitation, but set it on Wuhan. The, the rest of this viral dump from space stayed in, on, in the stratospheric jet streams and was being circulated around the globe. So they are the two initial events that took place. It came from space for us, and every subsequent bit of data that's come in fits that analytical pattern. And I'll let's I'll leave it there. So the one that's viable for us and uh, fits the pattern is that it, it came from space. First, striking Wuhan first, and then a massive viral plume, and then the other the other particles. Uh, uh, sorry, the other uh, meteorite dust virus uh, clouds were circulating around the globe to do their to do their uh, damage. So the first key point is it arrived from space and then it was distributed either by direct uh, by the prevailing winds in the stratosphere and the troposphere that is the lower level of the atmosphere between the surface of the earth and 12 kilometers about the height of mount of mount everest so that's they are the first critical events in our mind this scientific theory handles all the facts. So is this how the virus then spread globally from its source? Yes. Then can you explain its patterns of distribution then and the regions which were affected and then missed? Exactly. Let's go back to January last year because the temporal relationship and unfolding of the evidence is important. In January last year, this, this explosive epidemic in millions of people in China was restricted to China. Early February, we started hearing reports in mid-February that cruise ships in the South China Sea and the Sea of Japan, like the Diamond Princess and the uh, Westerdam, were being engaged with massive outbreaks on the ships. Now, at the time, it was all put down to infected passengers coming in from Hong Kong or somewhere else. But on the other side of the Pacific, about the same time, about a week later, the Grand Princess cruise ship off San Francisco, remember that? Mm. Mike, Mike Pence was put in charge of doing all the testing on that ship. We actually got some genomic sequences from that ship, which we've analysed. That ship was hit by the Wuhan plume. We know that from the genetic evidence. I, I, it, it's identical to the Wuhan plume. Mm. And uh, so in the, in the first critical weeks after the massive contamination across China and the, you know, the eruption... Some of it went across the Pacific at the lower level troposphere. But meantime, meantime, in the upper stratosphere, it was coming down and getting distributed. Do you remember, you, you take your mind back to the first week of March last year. Mm. In quick succession, we had Tehran, then Lombardy in Italy, both characteristic, by the way, both those are valleys at the foot of very high mountain ranges, Swiss Alps in Europe and the Iranian mountains in Iran. And then Spain, if you think back to the middle of March last year, they were just erupting. No other parts of the world were erupting. You know, they were all null zones. I was looking, we were monitoring that data above and below the 40 degree north latitude line because it was all on that line. 
We predicted then and published papers to show that the next big population centre after Spain had to be New York City. So we predicted the, uh, the, the eruption in New York City. Now, we've published all this, and all our papers are available at myacademia.edu website. Mm. And, uh, and uh, so, you know, this is, this is all available, uh, uh, public information. So in those first critical months to by the end of March, of course, there was jet transportation from Wuhan to the rest of the world. Mm. There was New York and Melbourne and a few other places and Paris. But the, the big explosions, the really big ones, were occurring on that 40-degree north line. So it was like a cosmic bombing run <clears throat> of viral Latin clouds coming down. So that's how that got down. There was a lot of other important things that happened subsequent to that, but, uh, but I'll, and I'll deal with that in a minute. But that's how it got distributed through these prevailing winds. The Wuhan flu went, went across the Pacific and got the United States from its west coast. But meanwhile, from the stratosphere, the carbon rate, uh, the the um, the meteor, uh, the viral Latin meteorite dust came down and struck New York City. So the new America got hit from both the west coast and the east coast, and New York then dominated mm. because that was a massive eruption, just like just like Wuhan, just like Tehran, just like the Lombardy region of Italy. They were all very similar. Mm. They all went up, and everything went up at the same time. And I should point out exponential rate. By that I mean tenfold leaps every few days. If you started with a thousand cases, within a few days you had ten thousand cases, within a few days you had a hundred thousand cases. That's far too fast for any type of person-to-person -person spread. Far too fast. People are forgetting that. We're talking about wildfire massive exponential eruptions at different discrete locations around the globe. You've got to explain that. Our, our theory explains it through the prevailing winds. Mm. I've got all these questions running around. We'll keep to script because we've got other episodes coming up in the uh, next couple of weeks. But I'm just thinking, you know, and it's a, and you probably would agree, it's a, a, it's a pertinent point because we talk about outer space. We, you know, we're going to find life somewhere. They're saying it's somewhere out there. What you're saying though is that outer space or space is full of life yeah that's what i'm saying in fact uh if you look at our video lecture that i've that we produced and i should point out that my it's not just me it's my collaborators professor chanda wickramasangi mm. professor rich kuzinski dr robin lindley genzuko takuro who's director of the institute for panspermia astro and economics in japan Professor Robert uh, Temple, Professor Milton Wainwright, there's a, a Darryl, Dr. Darrell Wallace, who's the expert on uh, meteorites and fossils and electrons, uh, uh, scanning electron microscopy. It's clear from a body of work produced by Fred Hoyle and Chandrawick Wamasangi for the last uh, over the last 50 years that the universe literally is teeming with life. Mm -hmm. The main vectors, the main vehicles for the you know the incubation or the allow the development of uh, you know the the growth are the comets inside these massive comets which can be several several tens of kilometers in diameter they're they've got warmed radioactively uh, warmed watery interiors mm. and they are virtually ecosystems that are just traveling through space some of those space journeys could last billions of years now i'm touching on now some very important points about the cosmos when we start moving to the cosmos and out of our terrestrial setting Every number in space and time goes into the billions. We're talking about cosmic numbers. You have to understand that. Mm. And look, just, let me just say why that's important. 
if, a, if, if the meteorite dust comes in with, say, 10 to the 20 viable virions in the upper, you know, in the upper mesosphere and then it's moving through the stratosphere and we lose by natural killing processes, if you like, of the virus, 99%, we're still left with 10 to the 18. That's a million, that's a million trillion virus particles. You wow. see, the cosmic numbers are important. Mm. Mm. And let me just go to another number, which is important in human beings. When an elderly, when an immune defenceless elderly comorbid person like myself, because I'm in that range and I've, and I've got asthma, if I got it and, it and it replicated uncontrollably, I would be releasing trillions of virus particles into the air around me and contaminating the whole room I'm in. Do you understand? We have to get our head around these numbers. Mm. It's what, not just black and white. Professor, the, what's the, the significance of mystery cases then? And are they really a mystery? Very good question, Mike. <clears throat> let me let me explain it. And I come back to the that pattern in China in January. All those ignitions across China initially, prior to some person-to-person -person spread, were all mystery cases. That is, the first person that got it from the meteorite dust didn't get it from a human being. They got it from the dust, either stroking their pets, uh, rubbing up against the grass uh, on a railing. It was a heavily contaminated environment. Now, we know that because the Chinese would, would, had all the, you know, in that critical month, and South Korea, they had men in moon suits dousing their, their environments. Remember that on TV? Yep. They were dousing machinery. They knew it was region, they knew it was China-wide contamination. Now, a mystery case then, are, are those ignitions that come in by airborne attack of the virus from the, from the sky through the viral atom dust being brought down by the, by the rain and contaminating a defined region. The inhabitants in that region, the hapless inhabitants of the region, um, don't know they've caught it. When they're questioned by a contact tracer, they've got no idea how they got it. All the mystery cases in Australia, because of their scale is so small, are all like that. Now, by the way, in the Northern Hemisphere, quite apart from a few mysteries that appeared in the first critical weeks with the Grand Princess on the west coast of the United States in early, you know, in, in February last year, where they did have some genuine community transmissions and mystery cases. Since then, there have been so many cases across the northern hemisphere infected zones, you know, tens of thousands of cases a day. There's, they have, do not have the resources to track every, everything down. They can't do mystery case tracing like we can do in Australia. In Australia, we've had several things going, however bad it has been for the population and the totalitarian behaviour of governments. One, we've had hardly any cases, the thousands, the tens of thousands less than the rest of the globe. Secondly, we can literally track them all down. We now have hundreds of mystery, thousands of mystery cases in Australia. We have a paper in submission to the Scandinavian Journal of Immunology that's just been accepted where we fully analysed Victoria last year, the, the Melbourne epidemic. About 30 to 40 percent of all the cases in that epidemic were mystery cases, not the one that went through mm. the birthing home, because that wasn't a that wasn't a mystery. It was all the other sequences that uh, the viruses that didn't go through the birthing home, and they're and they're a mystery, because there, there was no they didn't get none of those people got it from a person. You've got to understand mystery cases, which is driving the hysteria in Victoria and New, and New South Wales right now to even more draconian lockdown. Mm. Most of those cases, well, all, they pretty well all come not from false positives, false PCR. They're genuinely real mystery cases. The individual picked it up by rubbing up against their contaminated environment and do not know how they got it. It just then, it, 
then you question the vaccines. Um, and I, I, I look at a big farmer as a bit like the car yard down the road. And boy, do they have a deal for you. And you hop in the car and the engine falls out. We've all had one of those cars before or the um, steering wheel comes off or something like that. It just doesn't work. Usually about 200 kilometres away from, from life itself. The vaccines, they're a bit like that, aren't they? Do, uh, do they work against the virus? And we, we actually know, I mean, there's this emerging evidence that the efficacy is just, just dropping anyway. But why don't the vaccines work? Well, another very good question. And now that we know how it arrived and spread, we've got to now talk about how, how we have tried to handle this thing. Before I talk about whether the vaccine works, I've got, we've got to stress, this is a common cold virus. 99.9% .9 of people get rid of it. In other words, all the other people that you would have interviewed in some of your earlier programs, I agree with them, and it's basically like that. But the vaccine's important because right from the middle of last year, the mantra has been from big pharma and government all over the world that the vaccines are going to save us. So the, the plan has been to roll them out on massive... And there's been a propaganda campaign associated with that vaccine rollout. So there are all these new newfangled expression vector vaccines, which really quite, which are potentially very dangerous. All of the adverse effect and adverse deaths and effects coming in. I won't go into that. You know, you, you've, covered, you've covered that ad, ad nauseum. And uh, there is much evidence to suggest this is a, these vaccines are very dangerous to human beings. That's the first thing. But do they work? Does a jab in the vaccine, so sorry, does a jab in the arm vaccine, can that possibly protect you against being infected with COVID-19? Well, I have to be quite emphatic now, categorical, and use my authority as one of the researchers 50 years ago developing the concept of local mucosal immunity and secretory IgA in the nose, mouth and gastrointestinal tract. None of those vaccines put into the arms can possibly activate that immunity. They don't, they say it can't work, just on first principles. Now, what, what angers me is that Big Pharma, all my scientific colleagues in Australia, you know, Peter Doherty, John Shine, all the, other, all, the, all the senior scientists advocating the vaccine, they know that. They know the vaccine can't work. It doesn't activate local mucosal oronasal immunity. You have to induce that. And that's how herd immunity develops in the population, by the way. That's how we get natural immunity. But they can't work because they don't activate that. See, the, the IgA molecule is a specialised antibody that doesn't activate the cytokine storms or all the other antibody enhancement effects that Professor Dolores Kale talked about. It's just a, a simple binder. It's a highly avid multi-point binder that literally ties up a virus, neutralizes it, prevents it getting into the cell to cause havoc, neutralizes toxins, neutralizes any bacterial pathogen that's trying to get in through our nose and mouth and respiratory tract or gastrointestinal tract. Now, I know all this because I've worked in the area. And none of, the, none of the current jab in the arms can possibly activate that immunity. So the first thing, and I want to say it emphatically, and I'll take on all comers on this one, it can't work. They can't work. So that is a big lie that has been pushed on the human population. Now, they've got all these serious adverse side effects. So the, the long-term effects now down the years are going to be horrendous. But they can't work. Now, the next question is, has the vaccine worked in bringing the known epidemics and pandemics in the Northern Hemisphere to an end. 
we've just got a paper accepted that will be coming out soon, which clearly shows that the decline, the natural decline in the human population of, you know, severe outcome from COVID, that is COVID-associated death, you can't get any more objective than that, that was coming down and hitting along, hitting along the baseline well before the vaccine rollout began. In other words, even if the vaccines worked, they would have had no effect because the pandemic in the Northern Hemisphere is over. Okay, but we're left with Australia. Australia's in a bubble. We've got a hysterical situation down here of a government. We've got epidemiologists. We've got senior immunologists. The senior immunologists are, you know, are lying. The epidemiologists, are, quite frankly, are stupid. And they're advising the government who's just crazed with a totalitarian program. I'm sorry to actually sound so forceful on this, but there's no other way to deal with them. Mm. They have no idea what they're dealing with. You see, not only does the vaccine don't, does not work, but they've got no idea how all these mystery cases are igniting. Mm. And with that knowledge that I've just given you, which is hard scientific uh, deduction and analysis from facts, we, we, we could have handled things very, very differently. You know, with less hysteria. You know, mm. if we had this part of this explanation, if this was in the public domain last year when we first contacted the Australian, there was an alternative explanatory theory or explanation for what was going on, maybe the public could have been educated. But it's too late now. The, the propaganda mm. and the lies and the misrepresentation are on such a scale that all I can do and my colleagues can do is that we can try and contribute to a rational scientific understanding of what happened and, you know, and what's going to have likely to happen in the future. But the long-term effects of, you know, a deadly, unsafe, untested mm. vaccine program into the future is another problem. Again, that'll have its own epidemic or pro epidemics and problems. But the actual pandemic is now uh, ending naturally through herd, herd immunity, through the oronasal route of secretory mm. IgA-induced immunity in the Northern Hemisphere. But in Australia, we've got everything upside down. We haven't really had a proper epidemic. We've we're, got a propaganda campaign mm. to get everyone to get vaccinated, which won't work. So I don't know where it's going to end up. But, uh, but certainly lockdowns don't work. Uh, the, um, all the ideas about social distancing mm. are nonsense. Uh, masks don't work. When you've got stuff coming in from the sky, at the time when it's coming in, if you're out and about, maybe the mask might protect a little bit. Mm. But I doubt it, quite frankly. Because if it comes in and gets on the outside of the mask, you, you then take the mask off and then you put your finger up your nose. Mm. So, look, it's all nonsense. Now, as a scientist, objectively and bluntly analysing the data, I can see it clearly and so can my colleagues. And it may take a lot of, you know, a long time for others to, you know, to catch up with us. But I'm not alone when, in, in this analysis. And there is a, we've had a string of papers published now over the last 20 months where we've documented every single phase of this uh, pandemic and the way I've explained it. So all the evidence is there that, that we've published and we're open to be challenged and contradicted. Mm. We're behaving like a science, like scientists should. We're putting all our stuff out there in the public domain. And if we're wrong, we'll, we will soon get caught out by reality. Because there's one thing you can't do in science. You can't cheat the universe Oh, they can, but they can now, though, Professor. I mean, the um, I think science. I mean, in 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 uh, ten seconds before we get to the next bit, tell us what science is and what science has become, because that's the censorship and the all the other garbage that goes with it. So, 
what is science and what should it be? Dead right. And if I look exasperated and angry, mm. I am, because I've been watching this debacle unfold at every level. In science, the first requirement is this. You've got to tell the truth, and you certainly don't lie and cheat. That's the first requirement. Then the next requirement in science, probably it's on a par with that one, is that if the evidence changes, you change your mind. A good scientist growing up in an era, within the era I grew up in, I, that was it, I was imbued with that. Most of my colleagues that um, understand this know this. We were taught that. You don't make data up. Mm. You don't lie. When you get the when you get your data in from experiment or set of observations, you you test you you know you measure it up against your prevailing explanation, and if that's faulty, you have to change the explanation. None of that's happened here. Mm. Now in medicine, it's now even worse. The first requirement of medicine is first do no harm. That's been totally torn up by the TGA, the FDA, big pharma, big government, mm. all our medical officers, all our chief health officers. They've just torn that up. Totally, on massive scale, not just in Australia. Mm. But in Australia, we have a peculiar set of our own set of hysteria. We have our own bubble and our own political and scientific chaos. It's different to the chaos of the politics and science in the United States, but we've certainly got it here in Australia. I would like to think we can get out of mm. this, but one, one thing that can help us get out of this is to confront the truth, mm. confront the reality. That will help us. We've got to damp down this hysteria. Mm. Sorry. Australians are very trusting people, though. They believe the, the government, the, uh, the health officials, they believe the media. Do um, you think all that belief is part of the problem where we're at at the moment in Australia, where you know, where the rest of the world looks at Australia and says, man, oh, man, they're a bunch of wackos. They're, um, they're, there's no such thing as democracy. Uh, they're oppressed uh, you got the police, the army, everybody doing their doing their bit, lying through their teeth. But they're also saying that the Australians are complying. So, do you think that? Yeah, it's a little bit cruel. But do you think sometimes we uh, uh, our rational reasoning is in low in low supply at the moment? Well, you're up in Queensland. I'm in Victoria. Mm. All I can say is that Daniel Andrews and the government have hoodwinked probably 60% of the population, 70%, uh, into great hysterical state of fear and compliance. Mm. Well, SAGE did that in, uh, in the uh, UK when they first started. Their psychiatrist or sorry, psychologist said, you've got to really, really scare the people. And if it doesn't work, you scare them even more. And it's the same here, no matter which country in Australia we're talking about, whether it's the the, the province or the country of a Victoria with Chairman Dan, New South Wales, uh, Queensland, we're not going to let you in. In fact, it's amazing that I have to say, looking to you straight in the eye here, Anastasia is really doing a great job because she's got the border shut and no virus, no virus can cross that border. I mean, that's amazing. So do you think, though, all these, all these politicians and all their desires to become a country within a country, and then the media doing what they're doing, do you think this is adding to the fear and the scaremongering and the, 
Because people want to live, they don't want to die. And if they believe, back to the belief thing and the rational reasoning thing, uh, the belief and the rational reasoning, reasoning are, are butting nose, aren't they, with each other? Look, all your, they're all very, all very appropriate mm. comments. Mm. Uh, and it, as, uh, the Australian character is being really revealed by this um, COVID, mm. no mm. question. But let me just touch on Queensland and what look. Getting back to the explanation that it's an airborne attack coming in, you know, it, 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 the, the current attacks in Australia are the Indian plume, which is like another meteorite strike. That's come that went across the Pacific to America, went uh, it went uh, east, uh, west to Europe, but it came down the Indian Ocean, prevailing wind streams as well, and into the Southern Ocean and the roaring forties and struck Victoria and New South Wales. So what we've got, what we're getting now is the tail end of the pandemic. We've got, we've got. We've got a sprinkling and a dusting from the Indian plume, you know, Delta. By the way, that's a misnomer. The Indian plume has many different variants. Delta and Kappa are dominant. Mm-hmm. There are other variants as well. Um, but the thing is, what I'm, what, I'm, what I'm leading up to is that Victoria and New South Wales and New Zealand now and the French Polynesia, by the way, mm. They're all on the prevailing wind lines that have taken these hits through the, you know, brought down by the weather. These clouds have come in. It's a much bigger cloud this year in New South Wales than it was last year in Victoria. But nevertheless, it's all happening about the same time. Queensland, Tasmania, South Australia and Western Australia have been dead lucky. They haven't had a hit yet. Mm. You see? Mm. As uh, soon as uh, soon as uh, Queensland, God forbid, I have a lot of friends up there, get, takes a direct hit. With a, I hope it's over. Mm. What's what's Anastasia going to do then? What's that fellow in uh, Marshall going to do in South Australia if Adelaide gets a direct hit? Mm. Or the that pious, self righteous guy in Tasmania? What if he gets a direct hit? Or the or the total or the totalitarian uh, premier in Western Australia? What if what if what if Perth gets a direct hit? Mm. Think- about the NFL competition and all things like. Look, uh, you watch. They will behave just like Daniel Andrews. And Gladys, despite resistance, has behaved like all of them in New South Wales. Mm. She, despite what she's saying, her actions are exactly are identical to what's happening in Victoria. But you see, they've got a direct hit there now in a defined region. New South Wales, the defined contamination arc of the virus is Bondi through southwest Sydney to the west, right? It's a clear arc of mm. contamination that came in. In Victoria, the arc is southwest of Port Phillip Bay, to the west, to the north of the state, up to Shepparton, which is a, a mystery case all in itself. That whole town is a mystery case. And a little bit of sprinkling around the eastern side of Port Phillip Bay. But the eastern side of Victoria and the western side of it are totally virus-free, virus, virus free, right? Nothing to do with all the lockdown. They're just virus-free because they didn't get a strike. New South Wales is virtually virus-free except for ACT. Uh, you know, most of New South Wales just doesn't have any have any problems. There's a few little isolated mm. out- outbreaks, and some of those might be person to person, but some of them could be infalls from the sky again. But um, but by and large, the the major contamination arc of the airborne you know attack of the Indian plume virus uh, was uh, was in that arc, Bondi through southwest Sydney to the west. Mm. The only people that need to worry are the that 0.1 percent, the elderly comorbid. That they have to be looked after and treated properly, right? They're the ones that have it. But it's over. Now, all pandemics in history on this scale have come suddenly, just like this one did, done their havoc on a regional or global scale, just like COVID's done. But with COVID, it's, it's, it's a common cold thing, thank, thank God. The damage has been economic and, and social, 
and political, that they do their damage. Then they then the natural processes of herd immunity, decay of the virus in the environment, they decline. Then they go away. Then they never come back, by the way. The original one never comes back. A form of it might appear to come back, but the original one doesn't. Like the first SARS came all over Southeast Asia, 2002, 2003, got as far as North America. Then it went away and never came back. Yet for the next 10 years, we were, we were frantically making vaccines for it, but it's never came back. So those vaccines are useless. We can't even use those vaccines. The point I'm trying to make is throughout history, this is why we have to defer to the scientific analysis now, the historical analysis that Fred Hoyle and Chandrawick Ramasanghi have, have done a great service to mankind by publishing their book. Let me just show you the book. This is the book. This is the book, Diseases from Space. This book here is absolutely essential reading for um, um, most people who want to understand what's happened because everything that happened in 1918, 1919, which is their major exemplar, is happening now with COVID. Mm. Everything that happened there. For example, the whole state of Alaska came down with COVID suddenly in the heart of winter, sorry, uh, with the Spanish flu, well, with Spanish flu, I should say, in the heart of winter. It happened suddenly. And that came from the sky. It wasn't person to person. So, look, let me just say this. The, uh, the pandemic is over. It's going to peter out naturally. We're going to have uh, hysterical tail end reactions to it, mainly political, government and social for the next few months. Uh, and, that, and that's something that can't be changed. But it would be good if, if much of the population could understand some of the story I'm telling them, telling them now and conveying on behalf of all my colleagues, mm. because even though the truth may not ultimately let you, you know, set you free, <laughs> the truth might help you, mightn't it? It might ameliorate some of the hysteria. What do you think governments and their infectious disease experts uh, should have done differently? Yeah, well, obviously, I get asked this. So does Chandra Whitram saying it. We get asked it differently at different times. Sorry about that. The first point, and this was obvious when Chandra and I were analysing what was happening in, in, in Wuhan, is the, elderly, is the elderly group that have to be looked after first. Forget about vaccines. They have to be, their respiratory crisis has to be handled. It was something that was ignored and neglected in Victoria last year. But that and, and, and handling that is not vaccines because they these vaccines, even if you wanted them, you know, they take weeks and months to develop. The the uh, the respiratory crisis has to be looked after. You know, the massive inflammation, the bronchitis and the, the pneumonia, which takes out these elderly people, that has to be managed. Um, and other direct... Uh, you know, antiviral or direct mm. viral treatments like ivermectin, which has been unnecessarily demonised by, mm. by the political class, the the TGA, and uh, and and much of the mainstream media. It's, it's staggering how medicines that work, which helped India get through its crisis, mm. by the way, mm. uh, are being demonised like this. Uh, then, then you know, and there are a range of anti-inflammatories. The, the one I'm on, because you know, it could happen to me, and I, I've got I've got prednisolone. And antibiotics, which I'll use as soon as I get the first hit of any common cold or flu. Forget about COVID. Any common cold or flu will take a guy in my 70s out like me mm. with, uh, with chronic asthma uh, will, will take me out. I've been, I've been close to death on a, a couple of occasions all, all, already. And the only way I got, up, got over it was taking prednisolone, antibiotics, and within 24 hours I was back on my feet. Mm. Now, the other ones that are similar are hydroxychloroquine, mm. dexamethasone, budesimide, you know, they're all uh, steroid, you know, based uh, uh, 
uh, anti anti-inflammatories that are, which ameliorate that severe bronchitis, which does the damage. It's the infiltration of the white cells into the capillaries of the lung, which is completely overwhelming our ability to breathe properly. So you know, it's the so the first thing we've got to do is the therapy. The next thing we've got to do is accept that these things, these things actually do come from space. When they arrive suddenly like this, they come from space. So we we have to have we have to reorientate all of our orbiting platforms now and have balloon lofting things to detect things that are coming each year. You know the seasonal flu, particularly the, the respiratory infections, because mm. colds and flus are seasonal. You know why they are. Most of the time, they're coming. This new infalls, fresh infalls coming in from space. The next thing that we have to do is recognise that for respiratory tract infections, the colds and flus, which are the ones we're all familiar with, which cause most of the havoc each each year, the immunity has to be oronasal secretory IgA immunity. It can't be jab in the arm. The jab in the arm doesn't even work for flu vaccine. You know, no. for flu, that's, that's that's nonsense as well. And they've sold that one to the world for the past twenty five years. Can't work. Mm. I, I never get the flu vaccine because I know it can't work. In, in fact, its 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 success rate is anywhere from in predicting the next season ten to sixty percent. In other words, it's just a lottery. You've got no idea it's it's going to work. And uh, and furthermore, not only can it not work because it's not in, inducing oronasal mucosal immunity. You know the antiseptic paint, if you like, uh, and, uh, along our respiratory tract. It can't work because. We can't predict which what then what what the next one's going to be anyway, because mm. that's coming through the infall mechanism, or and let's let let let's grant a bit of credence to the shuffling mechanism that might go on in you know migrating birds, but you can never really predict which one it's going to be. So that's nonsense. So colds and flus, we have to as soon as we know what what we're dealing with in the next pandemic, we have to develop the local oronasal induced immunity. So that becomes a requirement of all vaccines. And it's and I plead with big pharma and big government to make that a priority. That you have to make those sorts of vaccines, not these simplistic, dangerous jab in the arm vaccines. But you so, would, you would sorry for cutting in here, but uh, if we were to talk about things from coming from outer space, viruses and yeah, all this stuff, we have been taught, and I'm just wondering whether our attitudes towards anything from outer space mm. is part of our, you know, right back, you know, you go back five, six hundred thousand, two thousand years ago, that we're taught that, you know, first of all, the earth is flat, it's flat. No, it's not, it's round, it's round. But this planet is all that we have and life does not exist anywhere. And then one day someone says, let's go up into, up to outer space in a rocket, and uh, we'll start looking for life. And the there was, and it still is. One side says there is no life except on planet Earth. The other side says, oh, but we're looking for life, following from our education that there must be life out there. But if you were to go in and say to say to a, a teacher or, a, or a, lot, a lot of scientists as you have, that it's full of life, it's teeming full of life, they would go, no, that doesn't be. Forget the, the, the scientific facts. It goes against their ingrained beliefs because that's what we've had you know, since the earth was flat. Do you think that's the major problem, saying that we're not looking for life? It's there already. We're looking for other life. Well, dogma in science mm. has, a, 
powerful grip on the mind and dogma and religious dogma other forms of dogmas also have a powerful grip on the normal human mind mm. we're no different uh nasa let me just make a comment about nasa because they they have to share a bit of the blame they have brilliant rocket scientists they have brilliant engineers they can do things which are quite amazing what they've done but they are hopeless biologists totally hopeless mm. I've told them that in major email broadcasts. I don't get any responses to it. But I'll give you an example of what they did. When Hoyle and Wick Ramasenghi were first coming out with all the evidence 50 years ago, and Gilbert Levin, the, the scientist that put the, and Patricia Strait, that put the, uh, one of the landers on uh, Mars and to do the isotope release experiment to detect life, they actually detected life on Mars back in 77. Like, very clear evidence for it. Mm. NASA said one of their other types of experiments, which was nowhere near as a sensitive, a sensitive or quantitative or even did the right thing, they said that came up with a negative result. Well, that's fair enough. That was just a different experiment. That was a negative result. But the positive result was clear. Mm. NASA have been burying the reputation of Fred Hoyle and Chandra Ravasanghi and Gilbert Levin, who unfortunately just died, for years. They've been trying to sideline it and and suppress the evidence. In fact, NASA are so bad, even if they had a rover on the Mars and you know, and drove over a squirrel or a, some other uh, bit of life on the ground, like a, a gnat of, uh, uh, of uh, moss, they wouldn't be able to detect it. They're that mm. hopeless. So if, I am, if, if I'm being strident against NASA, it's for very good reason. They have corrupted the scientific space. No question about it. Just like the, the, the uh, you know, the Centers for Disease Control and the TGA have done it with, with over COVID, the NASA despite their brilliance and other areas, on biology and biomedicine are completely hopeless. Don't believe anything they tell you. Because all the evidence that Chandra and Fred Hoyle assembled clearly showed that the, the universe was teeming with life. For example, the interstellar dust, these massive, gigantic dust clouds that are in, that are in all the galaxies and, where, where, and are the, the nursery areas for the, the new stars to form, you know, so we're talking astronomy now and astrophysics, and I'm, not, I'm neither one of those, but I understand the concepts. They've looked at that interstellar dust, and they set up a simple experiment. Fred and Chandra, 40 years ago, with, with their student, Sherwin Al-Mufti, they said, if we get the spectral sector, the absorption spectrum sector for freeze-dried bacteria on Earth, right, get that spectrum, which is a complex series of absorbed peaks and valleys in a, you know, a tracer readout, for freeze-dried bacteria, does the spectrum, the same spectrum at the same wavelengths in the interstellar dust, does that match that or not? They predicted it would match it exactly. Two sets of independent findings on the interstellar dust match exactly the signature in the lab. Now, why is that important? The reason why astronomers know a lot about our universe is that we make the following inf inference. We, we get... Uh, the spectrum of, say, one of the elements, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, you know, helium, or a complex molecule, we, we develop the spectrum, this absorption or emission spectrum over a defined wavelength, then we shine our telescope at particular spots in the sky, and we say, does that object, say Saturn, or that star in another galaxy, does that have evidence of the same signature? Mm. That's how we build up our knowledge. Now, all Fred and Chandra did was the same method. What is the spectra of life? through the absorption spectra. Is it there in the interstellar dust? And it is there on a massive scale. It's been independently confirmed, by the way. Mm. Now, when you look at the comets, when they're ejecting and coming around the sun and going past like Halley's, they're injected over a long tail and they're ejecting their debris. 
what's the spectre of that debris? Well, it's carbon rich. It's all the biochemicals we know. It has the same signature as the signature we see in the interstellar dust. We know that life is out there. Now, let's just go closer to home. On the outer surfaces of the International Space Station, Russian scientists, not, not Western scientists, Russian scientists have swabbed the outer surface, published the evidence that it's teeming with bacterial species that are common on Earth. How did they get there on, on the outer surface? Mm. They couldn't have been lofted from the Earth because the physics says that that's impossible. Now, what about other evidence? When Milton Wainwright and his colleagues from the University of Newcastle and earlier, say, 20 years ago, Chandrawick Ramasinghe and his colleagues from the Indian Space Agency lofted balloons into the stratosphere and using special techniques to sample what was up there so there was no contamination, they found evidence of microorganisms at 40 to 50 kilometres up. Mm. So, look, and but the big evidence... The big evidence for life in the universe is when we get struck by a pathogen on Earth, like we like we did with the Spanish flu mm. or COVID. So the universe literally is teeming with life. But before, let me just leave you with one one more bit of evidence. It's very very important, and it's we discuss it in our video lecture. lecture. If you look at the carbonaceous meteorites, which we presume is the one that you know struck China, if we look at the ones that have been examined critically, there are four of them. There's the, uh, there's the, the Orgeal meteorite, carbonaceous meteorite, that fell in France in 1864. There's the, there's the Mikai uh, meteorite that uh, fell in 1889 in uh, Ukraine. There's the Murchison meteorite that fell in 1969 here in Victoria, Australia, outside the town of Murchison. And there's the Polonarau meteorite that fell in Sri Lanka in 2012-13. In every single case where they've, where these meteorites have been looked at by experts with scanning electron microscopy techniques, aseptic technique, by that I mean is they no contamination, they fracture and look, and, and then they use techniques where they can tell if they find a fossil there, like a, a bacterial fossil or a higher cell fossil, they can, they can ask the question, does it have the same chemistry content as the embedded, make, which, is, which is embedded in, that is the, the, the surrounding rock yeah. and they all have the same chemistry that's it and that's that's the set that that says it's been fossilized you mm. see what i'm getting at mm. now now what's 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 important about all of these uh microfossil uh detections in the carbonaceous meteorites is that the carbonaceous meteorites are part of the were part of the accretion process of comets that led to the earth these carbonaceous meteorites date to 4.5 billion years ago so mature cell-based life, very clear evidence of fossil life, was in existence 4.5 billion years ago before the solar system formed. See, yeah. that's, why, that's why you have to, as a scientist, confront four sets of objective, independent evidence, cross-checked. As a scientist, you have to change your mind. Mm. You've got to say, that's real information. The deduction, ergo, there's clear deduction from that, that the that that um, uh, the universe literally is teeming with life. Mm. There's no escaping it. So everything that NASA's been putting out the last forty to fifty years is just pure nonsense. It's like what we're like these epidemiologists trying to explain mystery cases. Pure nonsense. Mm. I'm sorry. Now look, I'm happy to, to I'm happy to debate these fellows. By the way, in an open public well, debate, but none of them will debate me. No, it's the um, it's the um, I suppose the cabal. What are they called? The uh, the the cartel almost of uh, 
of scientists and you're not invited. It's like when they call, have, um, they say that 99.9% of uh, scientists agree with climate change. What they actually mean is that out of that convention of 100 scientists or 1,000 scientists, they were all invited. They were all invited because they you know, were pushing the, uh, the climate change garbage. So therefore they asked them, do you believe in climate change? And they all said, yes. So, you know, so it's not 99% of scientists believe in climate change. It's 99% of a convention or a group of people that they asked, and they're all their buddies. So it's the, uh, I think science has been taken out of science, and we have science fiction and uh, gobbledygook. Now, we've got plenty more coming up in the next few weeks. Uh, we've got to keep some for then. Well, because uh, yeah, I could actually address that on climate yes. change very fundamentally, and it links up with uh, the universe teeming with life. It actually does. Uh, it's very important that that evidence that I'll tell you later on comes out. Yeah, mm. it's a truly a fascinating subject. I have to admit, my um, science background was probably lost in space. Uh, that was a great TV show, but uh, I'm sure Will Robinson wasn't a great educator and probably still isn't. Look, uh, uh, Professor Steele, it's been a real pleasure. We'll do more next week. And uh, thank you very much for your time. And uh, I'll let you get back to a nice glass of red now. (laughs) Thank you very much. I appreciate the chance to ventilate these uh, to a much wider audience. Just before we go, I meant to ask you, if somebody wants to find out more, uh, can you point them to a website? Yes, uh, there is a website. It's Edward Jones. It's academia.edu, and I hope I hope it could go up on the Asia Pacific site for this program. Mm-hmm. It's a link uh, to all of our papers, all of my papers, but all of our papers published over the past 20, 20 months can be found there. And there is a link also in in, in it, but hopefully it will be at your website. The link to the video lecture, which goes over this in a uh, in a similar way but slightly different it was uh, just a simple continuous dialogue or lecture on my part um yes mm-hmm. so there are these things available academia.edu edward j Steele. professor Steele, thank you very much <laughs> but thank you very much mike much appreciated thank you